Well, praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Just want to start off. I don't know who put those little stickers out there that said pray for the elders, but it wasn't the elders. And uh, but we do appreciate the prayer. So thank you so much. That was very kind of you. It's uh, it's a joy and a privilege to be able to open up God's holy and inspired word together. So let's do that now to Genesis chapter one. We'll continue our worship this morning by looking at verses 14 through 19. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 19. This is God's word. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. So God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and also the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. Our Heavenly Father, we do just give you all praise and all glory as our mighty fortress. It's a joy to be able to take shelter behind the almighty God, the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. And it's a joy to open up your text this morning to hear how you brought it all into existence. And so we... We just, uh, we're just so grateful for the opportunity to come together this morning. We ask that you would change our hearts through this text, uh, reveal more of yourself to us through this text, and be glorified in this time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> I want to begin our time today by touching on a bit of what we spoke about last week, which was the great lengths that much of humanity throughout world history have gone to explain away the truths of their creator. To explain away through both philosophy and theory the reality of the sovereign God of the heavens and the earth speaking all things into existence by the word of his power. Last week we noted the impressive imaginations of mankind on full display through ultra-creative tales, tales manufactured in the hearts and minds of entire civilizations, desperate to flee from even the thought of having to seek out and then humbly bend the knee to the one true God. A plethora of elaborate legends have been concocted throughout the millennia by sinful men as nothing more than a means by which to sway other sinful men from acknowledging the almighty the all-powerful, all-wise, incorruptible God of all creation, the same God we just sang about. Not only do men and civilizations fail to acknowledge the almighty, incorruptible God, but then, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, they inevitably take that next step to actively exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Ultimately, Paul said, worshiping the created things rather than the creator. Last week, it was in the form of sea gods, and sea goddesses, and princes of the sea, fictitious deities manufactured and imagined 
by those who sought to provide sufficient explanation for earthly phenomena like the establishment of the oceans, seas, lakes, rivers, streams, storms, hurricanes, droughts, shipwrecks, and even successful or failed fishing expeditions. Intricate and elaborate myths, many formulated to provide explanation for why things are the way they are and why things happen the way they happen, all while in the shadows there's an obvious, prolonged, and intentional avoidance of seeking out actual truth, which is clearly stated in verse 9. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Meaning, the creator God, Elohim, Yahweh, merely spoke the seas into existence when he had commanded land to appear as barriers for the elemental waters, which made up the spherical globe, which he also spoke into existence by that same word, ex nihilo, or from nothing. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. He named the seas because he created the seas, meaning he owns the seas. He has dominion over the seas. They are his seas, And not a drop of them splashes here or there apart from his sovereign will. But instead of just adhering to that truth, or even seeking out that truth in the first place, billions and billions of people throughout history have gone the way of this dark and decaying world system. Many following the wicked leadership of corrupted and cursed societies, yet individually and willingly worshiping the created things rather than the creator bending the knee to fake deities, serving false gods day and night throughout their whole lives, even sacrificing the most vulnerable among us, women, children, to appease these idols fashioned in the desperately sick hearts of their fellow man. Again, last week it was the worship of the sea gods. This week it might be even worse. The great lights that we hear of through verses 14 through 19, the greater light, the lesser light, and even the stars above are in no way exempt from wicked man's attempt to flee from the obvious realities of their creator. Sun worship, moon worship, star worship has been around, well, since the scriptures have been around, but even before that. In fact, at the same time Moses was around and charged by God to lead his people out of slavery and the bondage to Egypt, Uh, charged to write the first five books of the divinely inspired scriptures, there was active worship of the sun and moon taking place right there in Egypt. Meaning the Israelites weren't only delivered from the physical oppression of the cruel and sadistic taskmasters, they were delivered from being under the yoke of a spiritually dark and thoroughly idolatrous nation. Sounds a lot like America, right? Oh, yeah. Amenhotep, uh, he was a pharaoh who served Ra and Aten, the sun god of Egypt. The sun was thought to be the god of gods, the creator of all the other gods. All the other gods depended fully upon the sun to rise each day. So he, as pharaoh, and all of Egypt worshipped the sun, as did the pharaohs that followed, Amenhotep II, third, and fourth. Interestingly, it was said that Amenhotep III claimed to be the sun god himself. 
He called himself the Dazzling Aten, or the Sun Disk, though he died a few years later in 1389 BC, proving he wasn't much of a god after all. His son, the new pharaoh, would go on to change his name from Amenhotep IV to Akhenaten. He instituted new reforms and even creeds throughout Egypt, which one historian said could be summed up by the formula, there is no god but Aten, and Akhenaten is his prophet. Sounds a lot like Muhammad, right? Eventually, the Amenhoteps would go on to be succeeded by Ramses 1 through 12, a mere 50 to 60 years later, and they worshiped the sun as well. And all this time... The people of Israel were in Egypt waiting for the true God to deliver them from bondage, right? Proving there really is nothing new under the sun, including the worship of the sun. Which, frankly, we still see in some form or fashion even up to today. So, for some historical context and to get a proper perspective of our consideration of the origination of these lights today, I want you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. You're going to see it in your own Bibles here. I'm not going to, we're not going to put it on the screen today. Deuteronomy chapter 4. This will be the foundation of our time together this morning. This is past Moses' birth, past the burning bush, past the plagues, past the exodus, past the Ten Commandments, past the Hebrews wandering in the desert for 40 years, right in the thick of God's giving them the law, which will set them apart from the sun and moon, worshiping pagan nations of the world, including Egypt, right? I want you to hear these words of Moses at the tail end of his giving of the people a recap of everything that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, had done for them up to this point. Listen as he warns them, starting in verse 15. He pulls no punches here. He tells them just how it is. He says, this will be an ongoing temptation, an inclination, even a desire of your wicked hearts to Worship the creation rather than the creator. He said, verse 15, Now, keep your souls very carefully. Since you did not see any form on the day Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly. That's Romans 1 language, right? Lest you act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below, unless you lift your eyes up to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which Yahweh your God has apportioned for all the peoples under the whole heaven. Keep your souls from worshiping anything Anything but the one true God. That's the foundation of our time together this morning. That's what we must keep in mind for today and the rest of our lives. That the sovereign God of the heavens and the earth apportioned or allocated or gave the sun, the moon, and the stars, not as deities to be worshipped, not that we would serve them, but Actually, according to his infinitely good nature, he gave the sun, moon, and stars as entities who would serve us. Egypt got it backwards. Just like all the other corrupt, satanic, man-made religions, including Islam. 
And let's not miss it now as we go to point two here. At the heart of these six verses, we see, again, a magnificent display of another one of the perfect attributes of our all-wise creator, namely his omnipotence. The incomprehensible, unimaginable, unlimited, infinite power and ability of God Almighty as he takes that which we depend on every single day, that which we view as magnificent and astounding, that which people have bowed down to and sacrificed to and have given their whole hearts to, both literally and figuratively here, the sun, the moon, which people have worshipped throughout the ages and simply said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. And it was so. Go back to Genesis 1. Look at the the first three words of, of, of verse 14 there. Again, by his word, vast worlds are brought into existence. Then God said, we've seen this almost every week, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Then God said, let there be an expanse, and it was so. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. The earth's preparation for human habitation was all accomplished in the first 13 verses, the first three days, the most essential elements of our globe appearing like that instantaneously. At at his command, the worlds came forth. Psalm 33 says he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He lays up the deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was. He commanded and it stood. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. That's Genesis 1, 14 through 19. All their hosts the hosts of heavens, including the sun, the moon, the stars of this galaxy, which is a mid-sized galaxy among billions of other galaxies that are scattered throughout the expanse, the ends of space that we learned of a few weeks ago, a space so vast that it's even forced the most arrogant among us to admit that we haven't scratched the surface of the expanse in terms of either exploration or observability. Billions of suns and billions of moons and trillions of stars that reside within the billions of galaxies and the vastness of the heavens, which all came into being by the breath of his mouth. By the breath of his mouth, by a simple command. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. How could we possibly be so foolish? as to worship something so elementary in his eyes. And yet we do so often, don't we? Celebrity worship, athlete worship, musician worship, influencer worship, politician worship. That's a big one even in the church, unfortunately. Nature worship, animal worship, plant worship, lands, houses, status, career, retirement accounts, hobbies, Look, these things aren't necessarily bad in themselves, maybe politicians, but, uh, but nonetheless, they're a part of creation. That which is created. 
This section of Scripture should be a huge, bright, flashing neon sign to all of us in here that there is only one who is truly worthy of our praise and adoration. Only one. The sovereign source of all things. Right? More on that in a moment. But not before we ask maybe the most glaring question here. Now, wait just a darn minute. What's this creation of light business? I thought that was taken care of back in, in the first day, in, in verse 3. Let there be light. There was light. Now here in verse 14, we see let there be lights. What in the heavens is going on here? Well, what's going on in the heavens is that God, who is light, who himself dwells in unapproachable light, has provided for his creation lights, plural. Indeed, light bearers, not deities, but entities who have very specific roles and tasks that must be completed, each in full accord with the eternal decrees and purposes of their creator. Look again at verse 14 just to see a a few of their duties here. Point three in your outline. We just heard the announcement. Then God said, let there be light. Now we see the assignments. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons, for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. I see four assignments or purposes of these lights to shine, to separate, to serve, and to speak. First of all, to shine. That's the purpose of light, right? To shine, to light up the darkness. We see it repeatedly in these first few verses, or in these few verses here, verse 14, let there be light. Verse 15, let them be for light on the earth, to give light on the earth. Verse 17, God placed them in the expanse to give light on the earth, to shine upon the earth. Now, how does this happen? How does this illumination happen? Well, all light is, is energy. Okay, one commentator said this. Science defines light as luminous energy, as radiant energy, as electromagnetic energy, energy which is moving at a speed of 186,282 miles per second. It is anything but static. It is anything but fixed. He said it's considered a wave, as a wave, as a corpuscular or quantum phenomenon. This wave can hit the retina of the eye, and when it does, it makes things visible. It illuminates things. All colors depend on light. Where there is light, we see. Where there is no light, we do not see. That's quite the definition. Luminous energy, a corpuscular quantum phenomenons, that surpasses my comprehension. Now, I can relate much better to the theologian who once had a meeting with an astronomer. The astronomer said to the theologian, I don't understand why you theologians fuss so much about predestination and infralapsarianism, about communicable and incommunicable attributes, about imputed and infused grace and things like that. To me, Christianity is very simple. It's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And the theologian replied, I see what you mean. I get lost in all of your talk about exploding novi, expanding universes, pulsars, quasars, black holes, theories of entropy and the like. For me, astronomy is simple. It's twinkle, twinkle, little star. (laughs) Twinkle, twinkle, little star. 
Now, many in this room, including myself, may not be able to stand up here and give you a lecture on the natural sciences concerned with the functionality of the solar system and its galactic and extragalactic objects. I may not be able to give you a sufficient definitions and explanations of the complexities of the matter contained within our universe, but even a nitwit like me can say with all the confidence in the world, the purpose of light is to make the invisible visible, right? To shine, to glow, to illuminate, so that those who were blind can now what? See. See. Well, we already had light back on day one. Why don't we just use that light? The all-powerful light that radiated from the source of all light himself, the same light which will be shining brightly in the new Jerusalem, on the new heavens, and the new earth. Surely that light was sufficient to not only make the invisible visible, but also to sustain all life on this planet. Well, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was, but obviously that's not how God chose to decree it. He determined... In his sovereign free will, again, the only one who actually has free will, to create lights, plural. These luminous bodies who had other functions and assignments like separating the day from the night. Earth's vain shadows flee, right? Now, again, we had that back in day one, right? But now it's gone from the general light that extinguished darkness present back in verse 2, these uh, light bearers now were given uh, to have a specific function and duty as it related here to life on earth. Derek Kidner called this section here uh, unashamedly geocentric. Okay, this is an unashamedly geocentric description of lights by Moses. In other words, he's explaining it from the vantage point of earth and its inhabitants. He's saying from our view... These heavenly bodies, they are there primarily to separate day from the night on this planet. This is basic stuff, right? The earth, it spins on its axis. The sun, while having energy and vibration to some degree, is static. It's fixed in the heavens. As we go round and round, our days and our seasons and years are determined based upon our position relative to the always shining sun. Same with the moon, right? Monthly lunar schedules have been determined based on its position relative to the earth. And we can tell the position of the moon relative to its position uh, of, uh, to the sun by the amount of light that's shining on it, right? So we have full moons. Then we have waxing crescent moons. And then we have waxing gibbous moons. And then we have waning crescent and waning gibbous moons, which are all fancy terms for saying Here's how the light is separated from the darkness on the moon. For us, from the geocentric view, day and night, the sun rises and the sun sets. The moon appears. Okay, These are all descriptors of light being separated from the darkness by this fixed luminous body known as the sun. Make sense? Now again, I understand I'm way out of my league here talking about this stuff. But there's one thing I'm absolutely certain about. In the plain, normal, common sense reading of the scriptures, anybody who picks this book up ought to be able to understand this truth. God is the source of all things. 
God is the source of light. God is the source of the heavens. God is the source of the earth. God is the source of the waters, the lands, the hosts of heavens. God is the source of all the heavenly bodies, including the sun, moon, and the stars above. Therefore, God and God alone is worthy of our worship. Okay? It's also crystal clear, according to the plain normal reading of the text, that he placed them all in the expanse for yet another purpose, which is, again, to serve us. Okay? To serve his creatures. As we talked about last week, the Son is a gift from the infinitely good, gracious God to his, crea- to his creatures. Even the ones who spend their entire lives explaining him away and, and eagerly worshiping the created things rather than the creator. Jesus said it himself Our Father in, in, in heaven causes sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. These entities, these, these planets, these stars, the sun and the moon, they're there to serve us, not the other way around. They're here for us to determine our calendars, to, as verse 14 says, be signs and for seasons and for days and years to tell us when to sleep and when to wake up, when to work, when to rest. They serve us in this way. I'm paraphrasing one preacher who, emphasizing the dominating role of the sun and moon in our lives, said, think about it. One 24-hour period is the time of the earth's rotation around its axis in relation to the sun. So the sun has determined a day. But it's also true that the sun is the determiner of years because it takes one full year for the earth, uh, the rotating earth to orbit all the way, the way around the sun. That's a 365-day time period. So the sun is the determiner of a year. It is also the agency, along with the moon, by which months and seasons are determined. Meaning, it is the agency by which the whole calendar year is determined. In other words, all of our calendar days, months, and years are determined by these God-given lights in the expanse. Then the preacher said, Have you ever asked yourself what determines a week? There is nothing in the celestial bodies that determines a week, yet universally across the face of the earth, mankind lives by weeks. Where do you think they got that? Out of Genesis chapter 1. That was the period of time in which God created the universe. Six days before resting on the seventh. So all those aspiring atheistic astrophysicists and astronomers over at CU Boulder gearing up for finals week, where'd that idea of a week come from? From the God they love to hate. From the timetable he put forth in Genesis 1. Again, six days of work, one day of rest as an example for his creatures. I hope you do well on your exam this week. The lights in the heavens... They're a gift from the one true God, a gift to all mankind, to serve all mankind, and again, the just and the unjust. This is why the psalmist exhorts all of mankind to give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his loving kindness endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who made the heavens with skills. To him who 
spread out the earth above the waters to him who made the great lights, to the sun to rule by the day, the moon and the stars to rule by night, for his loving kindness endures forever. May we always give thanks and praise to the Lord Almighty for his everlasting loving kindness. Amen? Right? Amen? Good. I was going to have Paul come up and blow that trumpet again. Trombone. I'm sorry. Don't make me get out the trombone now. So the purpose of these lights is to shine, to separate, to serve, and finally to speak. They speak. Oh, they reveal. They proclaim. They herald. They declare the majestic nature of this same all-powerful, all-wise, infinitely gracious and loving gift-giving God The heavens are telling of the glory of God, Psalm 19 says. The expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth. Their utterances to the end of the world. That means everybody hears it. Everybody sees it. Everybody knows it. This declaration from the heavens is what leaves man without excuse. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. Paul's talking about Genesis 1 there, the creation account. The the worlds spoken into existence by his word are declaring the handiwork of God. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. May we not miss the declaration of the heavens. Let's not be distracted by the things, the pithy little things of this world and miss it. May we not, as Moses said, be drawn away by myths and legends that dominate this evil world system. Don't let your gaze be shifted to the pompous, exaggerated hypotheses of those who dominate the curriculum in our schools and the documentaries on our TV. I'm telling you, don't buy the lie. Don't don't buy the lie of the masses who live their lives explaining away their creator through human intellect and reasoning. Don't be swayed by those who are so obviously running away from their duty to first acknowledge God and then give thanks to Yahweh as God. Paul tells us of such people. You know, he tells us about those people. He says they profess to be wise, but they're fools. Though they professed to be wise, they became fools. Their foolish hearts are darkened, he says. May it not be so for us. A denial of Genesis 1 is foolishness. It's Romans chapter 1. I don't want to be a fool. Do you want to be a fool? I don't want to criticize or minimize God's omnipotent power in creation, doing so would only cause me to theorize and philosophize, inevitably leading me to emphasize my greatness over his and idolize the things of this evil and corrupted world system, even the brilliance of my own intellect and reasoning. In other words, I'd create a God in my own image because I'm so great, so smart, No, no. I'd rather think much less of myself and my fellow man and have a big God theology. 
I'd rather be like the psalmist who says, When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you remember him? And the son of man that you care for him. And then be blown away that he does in fact remember man. That he does in fact care for man and spend the rest of my life praising him for this truth. How about you? How about you? Good. The heavens speak. The the heavenly host tells of the glory of God. They tell of how our worship ought to be directed to him and him alone. Even the summary in verse 16 tells of his incredible might here. Listen to this. So God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. Notice, quickly, unlike everything else thus far, notice they're not given a name. Notice he doesn't say that God called them the sun and the moon. In fact, he deliberately avoids calling them the sun and the moon, but instead deems them the two great lights, the greater light and the lesser light. Why? Well, remember who's writing this down now. Moses, that's right, fresh out of Egypt. Just like in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he didn't want the people of God to deify and worship the heavenly bodies because there is only one who is worthy of our worship, and it ain't the sun or the moon. It's the one who created the sun and the moon, or as he called them, the greater and lesser light. Oh, and also the stars. As if we needed any clearer display of the sheer awesomeness of the mighty power of God. He says it so casually. Oh, and also the stars. What do you mean? The trillions and trillions of massive glowing balls of energy who along with their light beams were created fully mature and each given a name. Stars that we've been able to observe even as they were created from the beginning of time which we still see dominating the night sky even as we step outside of our houses this evening? Yeah, them too. Henry Morris said this, it's interesting that the stars are mentioned as only of minor importance relative to the sun and the moon. He made the stars also. Even though the stars are incomparably bigger than the earth, many of them even larger than our own sun, they're of much simpler structure than the earth. A star is mostly hydrogen and helium, Essentially quite simple. Whereas the structure of the earth is of great complexity, perfectly and uniquely designed for living creatures. Complexity and organization are much more meaningful measures of significance than mere size. I think that's great. Hear it again. Complexity and organizations are much more meaningful measures of significance than mere size. May we not worship the sun and the moon, and the planets. God made the two great lights and also the stars. And lest anyone has doubt of who this God is, Amos says, he who made the Pleiades and Orion and overturns the shadow of death into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, who is that? Not Ra, or Allah, but Yahweh. Yahweh is his name. Okay, we're, we were doing good on time. Now we've got to hustle up a little bit. These uh, next two points are super quick, though. These are s- summary texts. We've seen the apportionment of the lights given by God. The announcements of the lights. Let there be lights. The assignments of the lights to shine, to separate, to serve, to speak. Now, point four, the appointment of the lights, verses 17 and 18. I just want to make this point again because uh, 
this point because, again, the ease by which God spoke these things into existence. God placed them in the expanse. Beep, 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 beep. But without depleting even an ounce of the amount of energy that I just did by going beep, 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 beep with my finger. No, he just spoke it into existence, and there it all was. It was done. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule the day and night, to separate the light from the darkness. It's incredible. Lastly, for our text, uh, point five, the divine assessment of the lights. As has been so common throughout our time in the first section here, God saw that it was good. It was good. Another good gift from the good God to his creation. There was evening. There was morning. A fourth day. A fourth, literal, 24-hour solar day, number four of six, before resting on the seventh, all spoken into existence by the same almighty God some 6,000 years ago. Praise the Lord. Amen? Okay. Don't get too excited with that amen there. We got 10 more minutes. I want to spend the remainder. <laughs> that was a hearty amen, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. I want to spend the remainder of our time together by reminding us again of an even greater divine accomplishment than even the illumination of the earth through divine creation, and that is the illumination of our darkened hearts through divine regeneration, a work that is accomplished by the same all-powerful, all-authoritative word of God, the one whom John says was in the beginning with God and who was God. In fact, turn there for yourselves so you can see it. Go ahead, Santana. Turn to uh, John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. Look at this now. (laughs) All right. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. There it is. That's fiat creation. All things coming into being by the decree of Elohim, God Almighty, and all things, all things coming into being, the whole heavens and the earth, by and through the word of Christ, or the word of God, the word of God who is Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who in perfect harmony with God the Father and God the Spirit created all we've ever seen and heard about in these first 19 verses, ex nihilo, or from nothing. It's a fact. Now, hear this. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. Okay, so we're talking about light and darkness here. Life and death even. What kind of darkness and death? Well, because it has to do with fallen man, we're talking about the darkness of our hearts. Spiritual darkness, right? Mankind can see the physical light. We can all see the physical light here. Everything, everybody, we can see the light. 
But that's not what we're talking about. We can't see as we are in the spiritual sense. In our natural condition, we're in Romans 1. Our foolish hearts have been darkened by sin, darkened by the ruler of this world, the prince of darkness, grim, who blinds minds and darkens hearts. Our foolish hearts are dark in their natural state. We're we're groping around in spiritual darkness that went all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when the man and the wife hid themselves in the shadows of the tree from the presence of Yahweh as he walked in the midst of the garden leading all of mankind to then, spiritually speaking, grow up and live our lives in the darkness and shadows of this corrupted world, trying to hide behind all kinds of trees in the society, thinking we can escape the judgment that is to come. But it, it doesn't have to be this way. Do you understand that? It, we don't have to hide from God. It doesn't have to be this way. By his amazing grace, he calls us and bids us come to the light Come to the light, but we must come. We must, at his command, come forth from behind those shadowy trees into the brightness of the sun. As J.C. Ryle said, Christ is to the souls of men what the sun is to the world. He is the center and source of all spiritual light. Like the sun, he shines for the common benefit of all mankind, for high and for low, for rich and for poor, for Jew and for Greek. Like the sun, he is free to all. All may look at him and drink health out of his light. If millions of mankind were mad enough to dwell in caves underground or to bandage their eyes, their darkness would be their own fault, not the fault of the sun. So likewise, if millions of men and women love spiritual darkness rather than light, the blame must be laid on their blind hearts. Whatever, whether men will see or not, Christ is the true sun the light of the world. I want you to hear this now. There is no light for sinners except in the Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. So here's the $64,000 question. How does one then come to this light? Do you want to know? Well, we can go if you want. I don't know. Keep reading. Verse 6. There was a man having been sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, so that all might believe through him. John was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens everyone. What does that mean there? The light enlightens everyone. That every man, woman, and child who has ever lived has the light of God shining in their hearts from their birth? Were they born with spiritual sight? No. Ryle just made that clear. Whether men see or not, Christ is the true sun and light of the world. And we know that not all men see from their birth because of what John says next in verse 10. He says, The light was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own. Those who were his own did not receive him. Jesus would go on in this very gospel to tell Nicodemus, the light has come into the world. But men loved the darkness rather than the light. Their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. 
Meaning, he came as light from God to expose the darkness of man's hearts, which, of course, caused men to hate him. (laughs) They hate the light. They reject the light. They don't want to be told what their darkness. They run away. They flee. They don't want accountability. They hate the light to the point where they blasphemed and crucified the light. But, such a wonderful but there in verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I once was blind, but now I see. Why? Because, as Paul says, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Okay, and then how do we then come to the light? How do we receive the light? How do we receive him? Well, he tells us. The light tells us. The light himself. He said it in John chapter 12. He who believes in me does not, excuse me, does not believe in me, but him who sent me. And he who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Have you seen the light this morning, my brothers and sisters? Have you come out of the shadows of the society, in the shadows of this world, and into the light? Have you received the light and let the face of the sun shine upon you? Have you been given eyes and hearts to see by the same sovereign Lord? Has the loving kindness of Yahweh not only shined upon you externally through his creation, has he shown in your heart through regeneration? Have you believed in him? Do you believe in the Christ? Again, how do we know? you'll know when you truly begin to worship the creator rather than the creation. We don't worship the sun. We don't worship the moon. We don't worship the, or let the star formations dictate or predict how we'll live our lives this week. We don't worship the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And we certainly Certainly don't worship ourselves or other sinful and corrupted men, nor the figments of their vain imaginations. We worship God, the only God, the one true living God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was God and is God and is the true light sent into the world which he spoke into existence by and through the power of his word. Do you know the light do, do you love the light? Do you trust in the light of God? If you're not certain, come to the light today. I implore you to turn from your darkness and sin, to turn from this decaying world system, to turn from your idolatry, your pride, your foolishness. Turn to your creator by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Ask him to shine the glorious light of Christ into your heart this morning to forgive you, to cleanse you of all your sin, to wash you as white as snow and to give you the privilege of being one of his through faith in the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of his perfect son. He is both willing and able to do this miraculous work in your heart today, if you would, but hear his voice through his word and come to the light.
I invite you to this morning to be transformed through the light who is Christ, to come to your creator through Christ and to live out the rest of your days on earth and all of eternity thereafter, offering your praise and worship to the only one who is truly worthy of praise and worship, Elohim, the Lord God Almighty. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer now and get some coffee on the way out. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We're so glad in it because you have allowed us to be instructed by your word and you've revealed to us, not only through your natural revelation of the sun, moon, stars, and the heavenly hosts above, but through your special revelation of your word. You've told us about your greatness, how great thou art. We love you, Lord. It's a, it's a joy to praise you. It's a joy to honor you and worship you. And it's a joy to do that right now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, would you